Good morning, church. The scripture reading today is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. At the conclusion of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Man, you guys can grab a seat. Thanks, Ben, for reading for us this morning. Uh, before we get started, uh, kids, if you are back in Kingdom Kids today, now is the time to uh, head to the door and uh, meet your teachers. Uh, we've got preschool over here on this side. We've got K-1 elementary over here on this side. And uh, feel free to find them. Have a blast back there in uh, Kingdom Kids. For uh, everybody else, uh, good morning once more. Uh, this summer, we are jumping into a brand new sermon series that we're beginning today. And it's going to be through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've entitled it uh, Life Under the Sun. And uh, it'll make sense as we work through our passage today why we have named it that. I'm excited about this because many of you uh, here participated in our spring class, which was a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. So I kind of hope you liked it. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to like this summer. But it's going to be okay. It's going to be good. We're looking forward to jumping in and maybe solidifying some of the things that you guys uh, started there in that class's space. Uh, let me orient us a little bit to Ecclesiastes because it's kind of a strange book. Uh, Ecclesiastes shows up in the Old Testament as part of a collection of books that are known as wisdom literature. The most famous of these would, of course, be Proverbs, but it also includes Job, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Now, we've actually never preached through a wisdom literature book of the Bible here at the King's Church, and I think it's going to stretch us in some good ways. But if I had to distill down to a simple message, wisdom literature, here's my best shot. Life is complicated. Amen? Anybody with me? Life is complicated, which means we need wisdom. And here's the good news. God loves to give wisdom to those who humbly seek it. Life is complicated. We need wisdom. And God loves to give wisdom to the humble. Now, sometimes that wisdom looks like Proverbs. Proverbs are short, you might say pithy, memorable sayings that are meant to be guiding principles for life. Live like this, and then you can expect this kind of outcome. When you read Proverbs, that's the feel of that book, isn't it? They're general principles. But then other times, wisdom literature looks like this book. It looks like Ecclesiastes. Uh, Zach Eswine, who has an excellent book on Ecclesiastes, says it this way. If Proverbs is like math, 
mostly dealing in equations in which one thing adds up to equal another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood with melody and tone. If Proverbs is like meteorology giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, then Ecclesiastes is the actual weather, fickle and unpredictable in its ability to rant with storms or breathe easy with a mid-morning breeze. See, Proverbs deals with norms and principles. Ecclesiastes deals with real life and all of the exceptions that break those norms and principles. As one author has said, Ecclesiastes is like the reminder in spelling that I comes before E, except after C, and sometimes after Y, and in words that sound like A, right? Ecclesiastes is a reminder that there's more to life than the rules. There are exceptions, and if we don't embrace them with patience, we'll never learn how to spell, and we'll never learn how to live life with wisdom. Ecclesiastes helps us see this and embrace it in the midst of our complex, often frustrating, and often confusing lives that we live. So with that being said, this is not going to be an easy task. Many of you who know from studying this book, it's quite challenging. So let me give you a few reasons why it is challenging. First of all, it is painstakingly realistic about life and about death. Ecclesiastes looks at things as they are, not the way we might like them to be. And in that way, it's kind of a sacred lament. It makes us slow down and embrace the reality of our messy, unpredictable lives. Secondly, it's deliberately provocative. I mean, it has verses in it like this, Ecclesiastes 7:16: Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Anybody ever given you that advice before? How about Ecclesiastes 10, 19? Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Some of you just found your new life verse. It's right there. There it is, Ecclesiastes 10. Now, this book at times, it will make us feel uncomfortable. We ask questions like, man, is is this in the Bible? Is that verse there? It unsettles us a little bit. For those of us who like precise statements or answers to difficult questions will not be satisfied with this book at all times. Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar, says Ecclesiastes is the delight of skeptics and the despair of saints. Thirdly, it is just difficult to interpret Ecclesiastes 12 says, of the making of many books, there is no end. And this is true of books about Ecclesiastes itself. The only thing that scholars seem to agree on is that it's a difficult book. Uh, They disagree about who wrote it, when it was written, what its central message is, how we ought to apply it today. But despite all of those challenges, I want to put before you that there is power in this book. And here's why. Whether you are in this room as a Christian or a skeptic or a seeker or not a Christian at all, I think that this book puts words to our human experience. And if it doesn't, let me encourage you just to keep living life, and it will, I assure you. It taps into the deep questions that we have, the unfulfilled longings of our souls and our existence here under the sun. And I think as it turns out, it just might help us live rightly and live with wisdom before the Lord as we seek to make sense of it all. So today, in these first 11 verses, just as an introduction, here's our main idea. Here's what we're going to see in our text. Life under the sun is fleeting and elusive, inviting us to humbly embrace this reality before the Lord. Life under the sun is fleeting and elusive, inviting us to humbly embrace this reality before the Lord. Before we jump in, though, let's pray and ask God's help as we try to understand this difficult book. 
Father, we come before you as a people in need of a reminder of the good news of the gospel, as a need, in need of wisdom as well as we live messy, complex lives. So I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are softened to respond to the good news of the gospel, even as it's found in a book like this. Help us to see reality, see our lives for what it really is, and help us to long for the things that ultimately matter in our existence here. Help us to understand, help us to apply, and help us to land at a greater worship of your son, Jesus. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today we're going to try to move quickly through four kind of ideas as we set up this text. We're going to look at the preacher, the message, the reality, and then hopefully we're going to land with the hope at number four, okay? So let's begin with the preacher. Look back at verse one. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I want to stop there because I want us to ask the question, what voice or what voices are we hearing when we open up the book of Ecclesiastes? Now, even if you have just a marginal knowledge of the Old Testament, you might have an idea who that seems to be referencing. There's no doubt that this is an ode to Solomon, the literal son of David, the third king of Israel. And in many ways, Solomon makes perfect sense. He is known for his great wisdom. He's connected to the other wisdom literature books of the Old Testament. And the experience of the person in this book certainly matches Solomon's. I mean, Solomon, to put it bluntly, had it all. He had money. He had wealth, he had pleasure, possessions, a kingdom, and seemingly unlimited resources and privilege. But I do want to tell you it's not as clear-cut as we might think it is. There's quite a bit of debate as to whether or not Solomon is the author of this work or not. You notice that the book doesn't actually ever say his name. Verse 1 feels a bit cryptic, doesn't it? There's also the issue of Solomon's apostasy, his turning away from the Lord and chasing after other gods, which is missing from this account. Some would argue this book is an explanation of his repentance, of how he turned back to the Lord. Others would argue, and I kind of lean more in this direction, that someone is writing in the tradition of Solomon, not to deceive, but to deliver a message in the genre of the wise king. The reality is we don't know but what we can say is it is Solomonic in nature. We are to read this book through the lens of Solomon. But how does he introduce himself here? Look closely. It says the words of the preacher. This has been translated all sorts of ways. Sometimes teacher, philosopher, collector. Eugene Peterson calls him the quester in the message, which I think is an awesome definition of that. So what exactly does this mean? Well, the Hebrew word is koheleth, koheleth. This idea seems to be one who collects and gathers wisdom to dispense it to a gathering. In fact, Ecclesiastes comes from our New Testament word for church, ecclesia. So the preacher is a fitting title for this figure. He has gathered God's people, he has collected wisdom, and he wants to dispense it to them. But it's also important to note the preacher, whoever he is, is not the only voice we hear in the book. If you go to the end of the book in chapter 12, all of a sudden another figure shows up and it's this anonymous author or compiler. And all of a sudden he steps back and he says, ah, this is what the preacher said and here's my evaluation of it. So we're going to follow the journey with the preacher. When we get to the end, we'll listen to the author and take his analysis for what all has taken place. So that's the preacher. What about the message? If he's this great man of wisdom... If it's in this tradition of Solomon, then what's the message he's got to deliver to God's people? Well, here it is, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all 
is vanity. That's the message of the book. How's that hit you? How you feel this morning? Did you come for some good news? Vanity of vanities. This is the thesis statement to the whole book. Now, this word vanity sometimes is translated as meaningless, but I don't think that's quite it. The Hebrew word, you might have a footnote in your Bible, it's hebel, and it literally means smoke or a vapor or breath. This word shows up almost 40 times outside of the six here in that one verse, just to make his point across. Almost 40 times throughout this, this uh, book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's the key to the whole thing. So what does he mean, vanity of vanities, or smoke of smoke? What is going on here? What's the purpose behind this? Well, I think this is a multi-purpose metaphor. The first thing it points to is this, that life is short and fleeting. Life is short and fleeting. Think about smoke for a moment. If you uh, blow out a candle that you've been burning, it produces a puff of smoke, doesn't it? But how long does that puff of smoke last? A couple of seconds. If you've been burning a candle for a long time, maybe eight, ten seconds. But that's about it, isn't it? It's short. It's fleeting. Now, I know we live in Florida, so play along for a minute. If we lived in a cold place, and you step outside in the cold and you breathe, what happens? You can see that vapor, right? But how long does that vapor last? It's there one moment and gone the next. And in the grand scheme of things, the preacher is telling us that's basically our life. Other places in scripture put it this way, Psalm 144. Oh Lord, what is man that you regard him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, hebel, smoke. His days are like a passing shadow. Or James 4, 14, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Ecclesiastes is a meditation on the reality that life is fast, is fleeting, it is short. We are here one moment and gone the next. How are we supposed to live within that reality? That's what Ecclesiastes explores. So life is fleeting and short. That's the first part. The second part of the metaphor, though, is that life is also elusive and enigmatic. You know what an enigma is? It's a mystery. It's puzzling. It's difficult to understand or to explain. So think about smoke once more. You can see it in front of you, but if you try to grab it, what happens? It's empty. There's nothing there. Depending on how thick it is, it can shift and just move elsewhere by the wind of your hand. It looks solid. It's a real visible thing, but when you try to grasp hold of it, you simply can't do it. It's like soap bubbles at bath time with my kids, right? The bubbles come up, what do they want to do? They want to grab all the bubbles. As soon as you touch it, pop, they're gone. It's elusive. It cannot be held on to. It's like a chasing after the wind. Now, with that picture in mind, I don't think the preacher is saying life is meaningless as much as it is elusive. It looks like it's right there for the taking, but then all of a sudden, as we grasp for it, it becomes frustrating. It becomes unclear. It becomes downright disorienting. When's the last time you had the frustrating experience of life just not making sense? I'm sure it wasn't that long ago if you're opening your eyes and looking around. It happens all the time. David Gibson says it like this, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on how life seems to elude our grasp in terms of lasting significance. If we try to gain control of the world and our lives by what we can understand and by what we can do, we find that the control we seek 
eludes us. The preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all smoke. It means that nothing we experience in our day-to-day reality is free from the frustration of futility. Life is short and elusive. It is fleeting and enigmatic. It is unpredictable and unstable. And listen, it might not seem that way until it is. Until all of a sudden tragedy strikes out of nowhere. Until some what we call fluke thing happens that just changes our day and our week. When you receive a diagnosis out of the blue. When there is a car crash, a natural disaster, a little virus halfway around the world that turns into a pandemic. Life doesn't feel this way until it does. Maybe this will help. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis, back in Genesis 4? Cain rises up to kill his brother in jealous anger over his worthy sacrifice to the Lord. And Abel is the same word as Hebel. Abel is a picture of what Ecclesiastes is saying. His life was nothing but a breath. And even though he's obedient to the Lord, his life is violently taken from him just like that. The righteous one dies at the hand of the evil one who gets to live. Abel is Ecclesiastes. Now that's his thesis statement. Let's call it thesis statement 1A. He's got a 1B that comes right after it. So look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does mankind gain by all of our work, all of our energy? I just said it a few weeks ago, a third of our lives will be spent on work or work-related activities. And what do you have to gain from that? And gain here means of permanent, lasting value or profit. You're going to spend a third of your life at work-related activities, and at the end of your life, what did you gain from it? Well, the answer is in verse 2, smoke. You can't take it with you. Ecclesiastes 5 says this, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. The assumed answer of what does a man gain by all of this work is nothing. And this is simply what life under the sun is like. This little phrase shows up over and over again. Ecclesiastes is a reminder of a vantage point. And the preacher here is writing from the vantage point, not from divine thoughts, not from this is the word of the Lord, but just from normal human experience. He says, just look around at our lives. This is what it is like. It is fleeting and short. It's elusive. It's confusing. And when all is said and done, what did you gain? What do you take with you? Nothing. It's all smoke. Now, some of you are more, some of you are more pessimists, and you're like, yeah, amen, right? You're like, this is, I've been waiting for this series. Some of you are more optimists, and you're like, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe you're kind of the glass half full type. You're like, ah, this feels pretty bleak. I've got to warn you, it's not going to get better the rest of this sermon here, okay? These, these next verses are basically the author going, okay, it's all smoke. You're not taking anything with you. And if you don't believe me, here's some points to prove it. So what's the reality? Let me summarize it in four ways. Four things that are reality according to the preacher. The first is this, nothing really changes. Look at verse 4 and following. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. 
All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What's the preacher doing? He's drawing our attention to nature to prove his point. He talks about the sun, the wind, the waters. Let's start with the sun. This morning I drove to church and the sun was just beginning to crest over the horizon and I was thinking about this morning and I was reminded that that sun that I'm looking at, that sunrise that we see or the sunset in the evening is the exact same sun that Adam and Eve saw. It's the sun. It comes up, it goes down. Next day, it comes up, goes down. The wind pretty much blows wherever it wants. We're, we're good Floridians. We get this, right? We just had a you know, tropical storm experience. One, if you're new, that was, there you go. You made it through your first one. Congratulations. We get tropical storms. We get hurricanes. We know that the wind blows where it wants to. It goes this way and that. Sometimes in the north, sometimes in the south. It goes around and around. The waters, they ebb and they flow. There's high tide and there's low tide. They never settle, they never fill, they never stop, they just kind of keep on flowing, never filling, just high tide, low tide. The idea is this, the earth has been here well before us, and it will be here after us. Long before us, and long after we die, the sun is going to rise the next day. The wind is still going to blow where it wants, and the waters are going to go in, and they're going to go out. Nothing really changes from generation to generation. Life is repetitive, a bit cyclical and quite monotonous. Nothing really changes. Secondly, nothing really satisfies. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, if the preacher could say that whenever Ecclesiastes was penned, how much more can we resonate with that today? Just think about our eyes and our ears and satisfaction for a brief moment. From the latest stats I could find, every single day, there are 500 million tweets, 4 million hours of video added to YouTube, 4.3 billion Facebook posts and messages. That doesn't include content just added to the websites and news outlets we might read. If you wanted to view all the information uploaded to the internet in the last 24 hours, it would take you longer than the span of recorded human history to do so. Between Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus, there are literally tens of thousands of movies and TV shows available for you to watch right now. There is literally always another episode queued up, another show to binge, another movie to watch. So this morning, let me ask you, are you satisfied? Are your ears, are your eyes filled? Or... Do you resonate with what the preacher is saying, that all things are full of weariness? Weariness. See, life is much more like the experience of Sisyphus than some mountaintop exhilarating experience than we'd like to admit. You remember the story of Sisyphus from Greek mythology? He's consigned to roll a big boulder up a mountain only to get very close to the top to have it come rolling all the way back down and then he goes down to the bottom and then he starts again. That's how I describe my sermon prep on Monday mornings. If you see me at Hillcrest, I'm always like, yeah, the, the boulder's at the bottom of the hill, right? Here we go. Over and over again. Life under the sun is exhausting and weary and tired. Nothing really satisfies. But he keeps going. Then he says, nothing is really new. Verse 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. 
It has been already in the ages before us. Now, the preacher can't mean there aren't new things in the world. Of course, there are millions of things in our world that didn't exist at his time and plenty of things that I'm quite grateful for. But he's not focused on the things that people invent or make. He's talking about the reality that nothing new changes our status and the meaning of life still being a bit elusive. Nothing changes the reality of Hebel. Everything new is echoes of something before, a previous smoke that we tried to grasp after. Humanity has longed to come across something that will break the Sisyphus cycle of life here under the sun. We have longed for something new to give us what we are really looking for, and over and over and over again, it eludes us. There is nothing new under the sun. The more things change, the more they stay the same. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, uh, which is... Uh, Letters from an uncle demon to a nephew demon on how to tempt and to cause humans to turn away from the Lord. Uh, they, they say this kind of in caricature. They say, the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in, human, in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. The same old thing can be a pretty powerful force against us. Nothing is really new. And then fourth, nothing and no one will really be remembered. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. He already said it in verse 4, a generation comes and a generation goes, and there is no true and lasting remembrance. Yes, we have history books. Yes, we have family trees that you can research and look up. We have digital scrapbooks. You can see pictures and monuments from the past. But how many of you this morning can tell me the first names of your great-grandparents? How about your great-great-grandparents? I bet it's a minority. And they're like our family, and we can't even name them. And even if you know their names, can you tell me about their life, their personality, their accomplishments, what they were like. We don't have answers to those questions because a generation comes and a generation goes. Here's one way to think about it. In about 100 years, I'll call it, in about 120 years, the entire planet is going to be populated with brand new people. We're all going to be gone. Nothing is really going to be remembered and no one will really be remembered. The preacher is going to confront us over and over again with the reality of death. It's the great equalizer that happens to us all, and it is a robber. Eventually, we will be forgotten. The work that we did will probably not amount to much on the grand scheme of human history. Okay, now let's step back. In the following chapters, the preacher is going to unfold his quest to evade Hebel, to evade vanity and smoke. He's going to try all sorts of things to make sense of this messy world, and it all ends up coming empty. So let me ask you this morning, when's the last time you reflected on these realities, and how do they make you feel? One of the things that Ecclesiastes is so good at is we can create this little bubble of sort of make-believe. Like, oh, this is kind of my world, and I kind of like it as is, and then Ecclesiastes comes with a sharp pin and just pops that thing. And I want us to see this morning that that actually is God's grace. Because here's the thing, sometimes that little bubble we create is not reality. 
and all of a sudden when something else comes and pops it, we are devastated, shattered, left without a foundation, wandering. We float away like the smoke in the wind. So when's the last time you reflected, how does this make you feel, and what does this make you want to do? If this is reality, what does it make you want to do in light of that? I'm sure some of you here this morning are deeply resonating with this message because like I've said, I think this is life. This is reality. Here's the uncomfortable part, by the way. Some people, I remember when I was growing up, this is how Ecclesiastes was taught. Well, if there was no God, this is what it would look like. We're going to get to the hope. I'm sorry. If, I mean, you, you guys are Christians, right? Like, is your life always easy? Does your life not sound like this sometimes? Do things happen that just don't make sense? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. This is life. This is life. So how do we live in this? I'm sure some of you are resonating deeply. Some of you are quite uncomfortable. I can see it. I can see you squirming right now. And quite frankly, this is the furthest I've ever gotten in a sermon without saying the name of Jesus. So I'm uncomfortable up here. <laughs> I mean, this is unique for us at the King's Church. Ecclesiastes forces us to realize whether we are a Christian or not, that life here is, as one commentator said, endlessly busy and hopelessly inconclusive. So for those of us who are there, what's the hope? What is the hope for this? Let me pose a question for you this morning, because I think it's what the preacher brings to our attention. In verse 4, he says this, or verse 3, excuse me. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let me ask that another way this morning. What if life wasn't about gain? What if life wasn't about gain? What if it was about something else? What if we stopped looking at life as gain and instead received it as a gift? What would that look like? After all, it is Jesus who says in Mark 8, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Brothers and sisters, what if life is not about gain? Well, here's what I'd propose. Because life under the sun is vanity, because it is smoke, because it is fleeting and short and elusive and enigmatic, I think this is an invitation to simply enjoy it and embrace it for what it is. Not asking too much of it, but also not asking too little of it. You see, as we embrace the fact that life is a gift with thanksgiving, I think we're actually freed up to enjoy its simple pleasures. Being grateful for what life is, not what we might wish it would be. We talk about, uh, we quote and read a lot of Tim Keller around here at the King's Church, and uh, he's been battling, he's a pastor in New York City, he's retired now, he's been really influential for us, and uh, he's been diagnosed with a pretty serious cancer the last few years, and he's been very helpfully writing about it as he goes to help us process that, and uh, he said this in an article uh, a couple months back. He said, since my diagnosis, my wife Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make heaven out of this world... The more we grounded our comfort and security in this world, the less we were able to enjoy it. And I think Ecclesiastes is a wake-up call to stop viewing this as it. How do we enjoy our lives of vanity here on earth? I think we enjoy it with thanksgiving. We look for the little gifts that God has given us, and we enjoy them. One of our core values here is finding beauty in the ordinary. Ecclesiastes is going to be the poster child for how we do that. He's going to say over and over again, your life is vain, it's smoke, so you know what you should do? Enjoy the people around you. Enjoy marriage. Enjoy a good drink. Enjoy good food. 
Enjoy your labor even, even though you're not bringing anything with you. Just enjoy working. Find beauty in the ordinary. Enjoy life for what it is. It's a gift from our creator. It's short. It's fleeting. It doesn't make sense. Enjoy it for what it is. I need that reminder because my grass needs mowed. You might need that reminder because your dishes are sitting in the sink. Whatever it is, let's find beauty in the ordinary. But let's not just enjoy it. Let's also embrace it. Embrace it. East of Eden, this life is not what we wish it were. That's the experience for all of us. This world is fallen and it is broken and Ecclesiastes puts language to that feeling, but so too does Romans chapter 8. I want to, I want to read this as a conclusion. Romans 8, 18 and following says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility. You know what that word futility is in the Greek translation? Hevel. Hevel. Vanity. Same word. Creation was subjected to vanity. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Brothers and sisters, our life here in this world is futile. Creation has been subjected to hevel. But this is all headed somewhere. One day that sunrise and the wind blowing and the waters ebbing and flowing, it will be categorically different. It's the day of glory that we long for in hope. This world of futility and brokenness is headed for glory, and that's why we can have a real, lasting, satisfying joy, simple joy for life and what it is. It's also why we don't despair. The preacher's not a nihilist. This sermon maybe feels like that's where I'm directing you. It's not where I'm directing you. It's not nihilism. It's not nihilism. This is headed somewhere. The preacher's going to explore that, but it's headed to the, the end of the futility, the end of the struggle, the end of sin, the end of death itself, that great equalizer. It's headed toward glory. And that glory is being ushered in by none other than Jesus Christ. We have to think about Jesus. All of those realities that Ecclesiastes just pointed to, Jesus has come to reverse them. He's come to start that reversal, but you and I live in the in-between of what we call the already and the not yet. Through what Jesus has come to do, through his coming as a man, his perfect life, his sacrificial death on a cross, his resurrection three days later, his ascension to heaven, through what Jesus has done, he's begun to reverse the curse. He's come to rid the world of Hebel, of futility. But he hasn't done it all the way yet. And brothers and sisters, until we get to the not yet, we need to look to Christ. Because here's the thing, although we live in a world where nothing really changes, Jesus really changes things, doesn't he? Even though we live in a world where nothing really satisfies, Jesus really satisfies the deep longings of our soul. We live in a world where nothing really is new, but Jesus has and is making all things new. And we live in a world where no one and nothing is really remembered, but why are we gathered in this room this morning? Because Jesus is remembered. There's no other reason for us to be here. And in fact, we're going to remember him again when we take communion in just a minute. Friends, I want to encourage you to both enjoy and embrace life for what it is. It's short. It's elusive. It's fleeting. It's enigmatic. It's frustrating. 
If you're here this morning and your soul is saying amen to that, then let's look to Christ. That's not just spiritualizing what's going on here in Ecclesiastes. Your life might be quite hard this week. In fact, I'm going to venture to say it probably will. But cling to the hope of glory that is to come. Life under the sun is going somewhere. And we get to take that journey together as a church family as we seek to make sense of finding beauty in the ordinary and clinging to our Savior together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the gift that is this book, a book that challenges us, but a book that also puts helpful language to the feelings that we have here in this fallen world, in our life under the sun. So I pray as we journey through this book that you would help us to see the dead ends of all sorts of earthly pursuits and that our souls would be stirred up and long for the day of glory that awaits each and every one of us who are in Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live realistic lives in tune with reality. Give us the humble grace to see life for what it is. Help us not pursue everything as gain, but to receive it as a gift with thanksgiving. Help us to be thankful in all circumstances, as this is the will of God for us in Christ. And may we, as a a church body, declare and display the excellencies of our Savior Jesus, the one whom these longings are meant to find their fulfillment in. And as we proclaim that good news of Jesus to a world that feels this keenly, may you draw sinners to yourself. May you conform us and strengthen us more into your image. Sustain us for that task, we ask in Christ's name.